You're listening to Hidden History, and I'm your host, Ellis Tucci. If you know any way that I can improve my content for you, the listener, shoot me a message on Twitter at Ellis A. Tucci. I would love to hear from you. To catch up on all my past episodes and hear new ones every week, subscribe to the show on Spotify, follow it on Apple Podcasts, or visit hiddenhistory.show. If you enjoy what I do, I love it if you left a review and shared the show with your friends. And now, on to the episode. I spent the majority of last week's episode talking about the 1921 Tulsa Massacre, but obviously that's not quite where America's race problems spring from. This is the second part in a multi-part series about racial violence in the United States. This week, I'm going to go all the way back to the beginning and talk about the beginning of the nativist period, which lasted from the 1700s to the eve of the Civil War in the 1860s. But it turns out that, well, that's not the very beginning. So while I'm figuring out exactly where I want to start my timeline, let's introduce the episode. This is Hidden History, and you're listening to episode 54. Nativism and Binary. So I've decided that I'm going to start this analysis at the point where things begin to change, which turns out to be in the medieval period, which begins in 476 CE with the final fall of the Roman Empire. Up until this point, people weren't defined in terms of their heritage or skin color, but rather if they were considered civilized, here meaning in possession of multiple traits including power over nature and the formation of a logic-based political structure. Those who did not meet these criteria were considered barbarians. Eventually, in the Middle Ages, due to increasing European contact with civilizations in Asia, Northern Africa, and the Eastern Mediterranean, the demarcation switched from civilized versus barbarian to Christian versus heathen. It's important to note at this point that this portion of the episode is a story largely told from the standpoint of European colonizers, which is really apparent in the use of the qualifiers Christian and heathen. Now, the reason that I'm doing this is to contrast this very binary social construct against the societies that the European powers would colonize and almost completely destroy. When we talk about the distinction between Christian and heathen, we're talking about either being a member of a very specific in-group, or being a part of the vaguely defined and extremely broad other. In this case, there's no sliding scale. You can't be somewhere in between. If you're not 100% of the right kind of Christian, then you're a heathen and the binary doesn't draw any distinction between the traits of those who it brands as the other. As I'll talk about later on in the episode, a social binary is almost never employed because there is a clear black and white distinction between two groups. Rather, the binary is used as an operative means of oppression. 
That is to say that the in-group, as defined by the binary, is given the power to continually redefine what it means to be a member of that group, a luxury which is not afforded to those who are disenfranchised by the binary's use. Examples of weaponized binaries can be found all throughout history, but one that is especially relevant to the Christian-heathen dichotomy is central to the narrative of England and Ireland in the 1500s. During the reign of Henry VIII, which began in 1509, he separated the country from relations with the Catholic Church because he wanted to divorce his wife. After his death and the death of his son King Edward VI, Queen Mary I ascended to the throne in 1553 with one of her main goals being to undo her father's religious reformation and reintroduce Catholicism into the Isles. She succeeded to a certain degree, but after she died, Elizabeth I became queen in 1558. She was the daughter of Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn, and due to the fact that that marriage had been annulled, in 1570, Pope Pius V declared her Elizabeth, the pretend Queen of England and the servant of crime. Which I think, you know, is kind of a, it's a bit of a badass title. But anyway, he branded her a heretic and said that all Catholics who served under her not only didn't have to obey her orders, but would actually be excommunicated for doing so. This was kind of a huge deal, because we're still in an era that believes in the divine right of kings, so having the Pope, who claims the role of God's earthly agent, announce that your rule is illegitimate maybe isn't the best thing in the world. The important conclusion to this tangent is that this papal order caused the monarchy to change the way they regarded Catholics. Elizabeth I narrowed the scope of the binary in-group to exclude Catholicism, which directly led to the adoption of policy that would, for the next hundred years, facilitate a brutal colonization of Ireland. The Catholics of Ireland were regarded as heretical pagans, and as a result, they were the victims of anti-Catholic religious discrimination laws that were meant to break the spirit of the Irish people. Social binary is almost never used in good faith policy or good faith arguments. As we can see in the case of medieval England, a binary is a tool used to insulate those with power and disenfranchise their enemies. Now it's time to talk about how the binary evolves. Obviously in 1492, Columbus lands in the Bahamas. In the years that follow, exploratory colonial forces from all around Europe make landfall as well. One of the many things that these colonizers do is take slaves. They do this in accordance with a binary laid out by Aristotle called the Law of Natural Slavery, which is this incoherent rambling mess that essentially says that some people were destined to be free and others were destined to be slaves and there's nothing anyone can do about it. Take a wild guess at who the colonizers thought were chosen by God to be born free. One of their justifications for natural slavery was the ancient binary of civilized versus barbarian. To these invaders, the native peoples lacked any of the things that signified an advanced society. 
so it was totally okay that they were treated as objects. But it turned out that these people were parts of the great Mesoamerican and Andean empires, so the first colonial justification for enslavement began to fall apart. After that, the Europeans began to lean more and more on the next binary in the sequence, Christian versus heathen, justifying their heinous crimes against the native peoples by stating that their religion was heretical, and only once they were converted to Christianity could the mistreatment stop. So of course the natives were forcefully converted, but surprise surprise the violent colonization didn't stop. So now I've got to talk about why the notion of binary is so important to the narrative of this story. And that's because the idea of a restrictive social binary is a European construction. Pre-colonial native societies had no concept of things like race, gender binary, or European-style patriarchal gender roles. It was this divergence from European thought and practice, paired with a willful lack of analysis of native society, that created a new binary. Racial. Native Americans had no concept of European notions of race, instead identifying largely with their given society, each of which considered itself to be easily distinguishable to outside observers due to differences in everything from custom to religious practices to language. The colonizers refused to see this image of an incredibly socially diverse continent, and instead decided that the diversity in language and custom amongst native groups was not due to them belonging to distinct and varied societies, but was rather the result of an organizational failure and a lack of vertical hierarchy. These cultural differences only served to cement the perceived inferiority of the native population, as policy began to be drawn along racial lines. One colonist described the situation in North America as, quote, so good a country, so bad a people, having little of humanity but shape, ignorant of civility, of arts, of religion, more brutish than the beasts they hunt, more wild and unmanly than the unmanned wild country which they range rather than inhabit captivated also to Satan's tyranny in foolish pieties, mad impieties, wicked idleness, and busy and blouty wickedness. The racial dichotomy implemented by the Europeans grew stronger as conflicts between the native people and colonizers grew more frequent. The Anglo-Powhatan Wars and the Pequot War in particular served to create a mindset among colonists that there was no difference between friendly and hostile natives. Now, in the midst of these conflicts that inflamed racial tensions in the Americas, something else happened that I actually mentioned last episode. The introduction of African slaves to North America in 1619. Initially, the justification for African chattel slavery was the Christian-heathen binary, but that wouldn't last long. As black slavery became a critical part of the colonial economy, efforts to convert the slaves increased, which eventually began to blur the line between Christian and heathen. If any shades of gray find their way into a binary system, it loses all power. Because of this anxiety, 
colonists needed a solution that could entrench their power as members of the in-group while permanently defining the other. Their solution came in 1636, when colonial Barbados made African slavery perpetual, essentially putting the natural law of slavery into writing. That legal precedent was then used in the Virginia colony, which, over the course of a 65-year period ending in 1705, passed a series of radical slave laws that began, in part, as the legal codification of the Christian heathen binary. It ended with the institution of a series of brutal laws that drew a binary between the rights of white and black men. The Jamestown Slave Laws, as they are collectively known, did everything from legalize the casual murder of slaves, to promote sadistic physical punishments, to forbid any kind of interracial marriages. They served as a model for slave codes in other colonies, and by 1724 had spread all the way to Louisiana. The result of this was the total dehumanization of Africans. This was a world where the children of slaves were, quote, weaned and given away like puppies. At this point, it's probably obvious, but both the Native Americans and Africans have been othered by white settler colonialism. What's interesting to note, though, is that these two groups don't receive similar considerations under this umbrella of white supremacy. Native Americans are treated as savages to be hunted down and killed, but Africans are treated more as a scientific curiosity. As time goes on, fascination with the African body continued to grow, and then in comes scientific racism. Scientific racism is pretty much what it sounds like. It's the use of pseudoscientific methods to attempt to find a natural justification for, in this case, white supremacy. And so in the 1700s, you have scores of doctors and philosophers scrambling to find a scientific explanation for why black people were inferior. A lot of the debate orbited around a pigment in the skin. According to Virginia doctor John Mitchell, the color difference was in part due to environmental differences and in part due to the quote, very barbarous and rude manner of the native Africans. In 1765, French anatomist Claude Nicolas Lecat claimed to have discovered a black fluid named Ethiops that was found in the African brain. He claimed that this make-believe goop stained everything from the skin to the blood to the sperm, pitch black. Philosophers of the time claimed that Africans were so low on the natural hierarchy as to be just above orangutans, and thinkers like David Hume wrote off any intellectual displays by African people as, quote, parroting the thoughts of their white betters. These dubious findings were used as evidence to back up claims of the supposed natural inferiority of African people and people of African descent, enforcing and perpetuating systems of chattel slavery. Eventually, this systematic oppression led to armed revolts of Native Americans and a series of slave revolts throughout the colonies. 
Some notable examples of these include Pontiac's War of 1763, which was a joint effort between a number of Native American tribes with the goal of driving the British colonizers off their land. The Cherokee Indian Wars and the Northwest Indian War, all occurring after colonial independence, all had the similar goal of resisting American expansion and driving out the colonizers. Alongside these conflicts with Native Americans, we have, over the course of 30 years, two major slave revolts in New York State alone. From 1730 onward, we have the Santo Rebellion in South Carolina, the Samba Rebellion in Louisiana, mass escapes in Georgia, the Chatham Manor Rebellion in Virginia, and so much more. In a fun twist of hypocrisy, the English court decided in 1772 that chattel slavery had no basis in English law, and so it was abolished. But it turns out that what's good for the goose isn't so good for the gander. So while the English viewed slaveholding on their home island as unconscionable, they were perfectly fine propagating slave economies in all of their colonies. It turns out the white supremacy is not a sustainable governing ideology. So I haven't been able to get into the nativist riots as much as I would have liked to in this episode. But I think that talking about the preface to what caused those conflicts actually served the narrative of the episode better? I'm not exactly sure. Let me know what you think. Anyway, this episode obviously was focused on race relations under a colonial system. And given that imperialism is the final form of capitalism, boy are we going to have a field day next week when I talk about race relations under industrial capitalism. <laughs> Thanks for listening. This is Ellis Tucci at Hidden History. Signing off. <laughs>